So good afternoon, everyone. Um, my name is Davina Limes. I'm the Managing Director at the E-Commerce Club, and I'm co-hosting this event today with um, Dal and the team over at the Fashion Network, or TFN, as you might refer to them. Um, and um, we originally had planned to do this event as um, a physical event, and, um, and it was going to take place in London and Manchester um, earlier this year. Um, but um, we felt that it would be a good idea to bring it online now. Um, and we've got a, a guest panel um, with us today to answer your questions. Um, I'll give you a little bit of kind of uh, running order and sort of understanding as to how we're going to run things today. Um, we've got sort of like the chat function. Um, so if you've got sort of comments or, um, or things that you want to kind of sort of flag as we're going through, please do sort of like put them in there. You can also raise your hand um, if you've got a question to ask um, and we will try and incorporate that as much as possible as we go along. Um, but there will also be a little bit of time at the end as well um, for you to be able to ask, ask some questions. Um, and, um, and so I think sort of without further ado, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna get the panel to introduce themselves. They can tell you a little bit about themselves um, and, um, and a little bit about their role um, and where they kind of fit into the industry. So you get some context on that. Um, so I'm going to hand over to Gavin first, if you can just uh, say hello to everyone. Hello, everybody. Uh, my name is Gavin Warwick. I'm the partnership manager for, for Smart Freight. And Smart Freight is specifically a last mile TMS, which I suppose in layman's terms um, is that we are a multi-carrier um, shipping platform. We have 650 carriers available uh, through the platform globally. Um, Smart Freight is also a subsidiary of WiseTech Global, we are the world's leading provider of um, IT solutions to the logistics and supply chain industry. And we have business, so we have um, uh, offices in um, 59 countries around the world. And um, I suppose specifically from a smart freight perspective, um, we provide a platform that integrates into your ERP, WMS or um, e-com site. Um, and the platform is personalized with your uh, specific carriers, your rate cards, and you can set up business rules to automate um, which carrier uh, any particular order should ship with. So you're taking the human out of the process to ensure you always ship in the optimal manner uh, for your business. Uh, that's smart for it. Excellent. Thanks very much, Gavin. Um, Brad, could you uh, let people know a little bit about yourself, please? Certainly. Thank you very much. Very pleasure to be here. I uh, and will bring hopefully a little bit more of a North American perspective, based in Montreal, working uh, globally. We, I am in charge of uh, helping the expansion of Heyday into the European markets, both uh, Spain, France, and uh, the UK. Heyday is a conversational AI platform. What that means, it's built for uh, conversational commerce, it's built for social selling, using chat effectively on uh, Facebook Messenger, WhatsApp, et cetera, to engage an audience and to, and to really try and sell. So we are uh, super excited to be part of the e-commerce growth and the acceleration we've seen over the last few months and are working with clients across Shopify Plus, as well as uh, Magento and Salesforce Commerce Clouds typically. So happy to be here and provide some uh, of, our, uh, of our views and angles on, uh, on e-commerce. Excellent. Thank you very much, Brad. Um, Lucy, could you let us know um, a little bit about yourself and um, an OMG Transact, which is a, a fairly new uh, division, isn't it? Yeah, thanks, Davina. Hi, everyone. Uh, great to be here today. My name is Lucy Hawkes. I am Regional E-Commerce Director for OMG Transact. Um, 
And as Davina said, OMG Transact is a relatively new um, business. It's part of Omnicom Media Group and is the e-commerce consultancy arm of the business. Um, we're a network of international e-commerce specialists and we specialize in um, Amazon, but also all other e-retailers across the globe and supporting brands in their e-commerce journey uh, from retail to operations and also media and digital, um, digital performance as well. Excellent, thank you very much, Lucy. Um, and last but definitely not least, uh, Marcus, it's your turn now. Thanks, glad of the definitely not least. Uh, hi everyone, uh, also very excited to be here, so thanks for having me guys. Uh, I'm Marcus, I'm the Managing Director at ID. Uh, ID has been for the last 27 years or so one of the largest uh, brand experience agencies in the UK. Uh, broadly we do three things, large-scale experiential activations uh, across, uh, across a number of different countries, uh, the only turnkey uh, pop-up retail uh, activations uh, agency in the UK, uh, but really for the last four or five years, we've specialised in physical retail and how we can bring fantastic experiences into retail stores uh, alongside a future fit commercial model uh, for kind of 2020 and beyond. Uh, so uh, we've recently relaunched that retail proposition uh, called Agile Retail. Uh, and that's a result of us kind of running, uh, running and operating a number of retail stores uh, for some of our current uh, retail partners, which has been really successful. Uh, so I'm going to spend a lot of time today talking about the role of physical retail, I think, in our future. Uh, and we certainly believe that physical retail stores have a really exciting, profitable and vibrant place in the omnichannel ecosystem in the future, particularly in fashion, actually. Um, but only if that model is really, really challenged and disrupted over the next couple of years. So it'll be a really interesting discussion today, I'm sure. Excellent. Thank you very much, Marcus. And yes, I think, you know, the, the, where the physical store will fit is, is definitely going to be part of the discussion. Um, so we just put up, we, we pre-identify some areas that we wanted to cover today. So um, here's some of the sort of things that we're going to be working through. Um, you know, as I was saying that um, as you're listening in, um, please do use the chat function. Please do raise your hand if you've got a question and we will try and refer, refer as much as possible sort of to your questions as we go along. Um, and, um, and so I think uh, now we've got a, a poll, haven't we, Dal? So um, we just wanted to understand, so if you can sort of vote on this, and this, you know, we've got a couple of polls sort of throughout the, um, the, the actual session today, um, is we'd like to understand what percentage of sales do you think went online in the UK in August? Um, so if you can just kind of tick one of these percentages now, um, and we should then sort of see this vote sort of come up live um, shortly, um, then we thought it'd be, you know, just useful to sort of get a, a view as to um, as to what you thought sort of the prevalence of um, e-commerce was um, in the UK in August. Um, so if you can vote now, that would be great. Thank you very much. So, ah, look. Okay, so 60% of you think 68%. <laughs> So interesting. Do we actually know what the stat is? I was going to say I don't actually know what the stat is. I think it's um, Marcus. Was it? Was it? Was it your company wanted to put the poll? Uh, yes, it was. Um, and congratulations, five of you, because the correct answer is twenty-eight percent, and that's the highest. Uh, that's the highest that number has been ever in the UK. Wow, that's amazing, isn't it? So. I'm actually thinking then, it's like, let's go into the first question because um, looking at sort of how the retail model will continue to change. 
Um, I wonder whether off the back of that, Marcus, we can start with you. Um, that's actually surprisingly low. I think we possibly people, obviously a lot of people thought it was going to be much higher where, you know, people have shifted to a sort of more e-commerce kind of led model um, in recent months. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, we, I, I and we certainly suspected that poll might, might sort of come out with those sorts of numbers, I think. Uh, and I think that's a, it's a really, it's a really interesting question to kind of follow up with as to why that is. Uh, there's certainly a lot more uh, media attention around the growth of online. There's, there's undeniably been a huge amount of, of, of growth online, and that's only going to continue. If we if we run that poll again and said, well, what was the number in February? I think the, num the number would have been closer to 20%. So, you know, in, in, in transitional terms, it's actually, although the pure number is still relatively low, it's actually a fairly, you know, a fairly extreme jump over a, over a relatively short period of time forward for, for online transactions uh, for some obvious reasons. Um, I think, kind of as that, as you kind of play that out into that specific question around how does the how does the retail model continue to change? I think it's a bit of a double-edged sword. So, on the one hand, that pace of change is only going to continue to accelerate, and I think in the sh in the short to medium term, clearly transacting in retail is only going to become more and more online and more and more automated. And I won't steal some kind of Brad's thunder, but some of the areas that he particularly works in and, and can share some insights for are undoubtedly the future of transaction, transactional retail. I think what's really interesting is we kind of ignore the 78% right now that still kind of goes physically through a shop. And actually there's a real kind of um, revolution, I think, starting to take place in how physical, physical retail stores reinvent themselves and understand what their role is in that highly digitized world. And it's much more centered around uh, becoming more of a brand media and engagement exercise, I think. Stores exist more for uh, spaces to allow customers to come and discover products that you can then go and buy online, you know, the kind of made.com sort of model, or somewhere where you can get a bit of affinity and a bit of an experience to kind of emotionally connect with that brand. Or you might have a particularly complicated product that needs a little bit of demonstration and discussion. So I think we're increasingly starting to see the model of retail change and kind of split between a highly transactional online, really simple automated purchase assist model and an experience led retailtainment kind of role for physical stores with a completely different set of appraisal behind it. And is this like a kind of natural progression or do you think things have been sped up and this was the way we were going anyway or do you think that anything's fundamentally changed with the you know, effects of the pandemic? Uh, I think, I think it would be, it'd be naive, naive for anyone to say that the pandemic hasn't sped stuff up. I think generationally the pandemic has helped a kind of cluster of society who wouldn't naturally have entertained digital shopping to suddenly have to start doing so and realise it's kind of not the end of the world and become maybe late stage adopters. I think the, the trajectory that was already happening, however, is uh, the kind of millennials, Gen Zs and, and below who start becoming the dominant purchasing force in the near future have never been so product oriented anyway. You know, there's lots of research out there now around, you know, 72% of millennials will spend more money on an experience than they will for a product. 82% of Gen Z say kind of where a brand comes from in terms of its sustainability credentials is way more important. Again, all this sort of stuff that we'll touch on in the future. But the role of kind of an experience and a brand connection for that generation of consumers is, has always been a much more strong advocacy point than it, than it has been for previous generations. So I think we were on that journey anyway. Excellent, excellent. Brad, I'm going to come to you next because I want to get everyone's view on this, which is, you know, where do you kind of see this sort of retail model going? What do you think it's going to look like? I mean, I think that it's, you know, I, I can, I can, 
Marcus's ideas there, and I'll try and give a again a North American example if I can. I think this could be relevant, but just in terms of the change, uh, you know, this acceleration is undeniable. Uh, we see it in our own business, our own our own data. We see it like as what flows through our platform, but more specifically, you know, with the the store closures, the potential for Main Street or High Street, you know, going through another another wave. You know, there has been a massive, um, more let's say, interest in finding new ways to engage. And I think that that this idea of engagement, whether it's by via chat or whether it's via video or whether it's via you know new uh, pop-up stores or you know maybe a, a personalized VIP event or anything that 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 still creates a connection, creates a brand resonance. I think that it's really really important. At Heyday, we use chat to continue to do that so that I can still talk through WhatsApp or I can still answer questions or I can deliver a brand promise. But you know, the, there still is a role for a store and a store very executionally can be a click and collect. It can be a you know, buy online, pick up in store, book an appointment so that you, know, you feel safe picking up your package if you wanna do that. And it goes all the way to what Marcus was saying around you know, really more of a showrooming type of you know, brand, you know, uh, experience and the best thing I can use is and hopefully you know everyone is familiar with like a Canada goose and the big parkas that that people use these days in uh, in North America and, and and Europe and Asia which is a really trendy brand well they've taken actually and they've launched new stores that don't even have any product inside they just have a cold room where you literally put on parkas and test them in a minus 20 minus 30 room and then you basically use some QR, some QR codes and, you know, use some emails or use some other form of, uh, you know, digital kind of follow-up to then maybe go buy online. So, you know, there's a lot of interesting things that are happening and, you know, it's only going to be, you know, more innovative, more experimentation. I think it's a great opportunity. I mean, you know, we just has to test, 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 and we'll figure out what, you know, your demographic, your target market wants. And um, we've got a question coming from uh, Lex, um, who's listening in. Um, when, if we go down this kind of showrooming type route, um, will it possibly be multiple brands within sort of like a single sort of showroom sort of experiential type environment? Or do you think it will become sort of individualized to the brand and the brand will want to own that experience in their own right? I I, I'm going to go with, I mean, I bad answer, but it depends. Like if I look at, if I look at some of our retail, the luxury client, luxury client already has three, four, five, sometimes 12 brands. So they're using, they're now using a warehouse that used to just have stock and they've turned it into a showroom to do video chat and to do video appointments and do, to, to do styling. Well, you know what? There's, there's 12 different brands inside that showroom. So it's really, it really depends if you are a multi-brand or you're a single brand. Obviously, you're a single brand, you still have to, you know, you can still do it. There's an opportunity if you still have your store associates or your merchandisers or, you know, your, your stylist can be inside a single location and can turn that location into more of a VIP video chat kind of, uh, of experience. So showrooming is, you know, is, is, is comes in, in a couple different ways. But at the end of the day, it's still brand connection to individual. And I think that is still what, you know, was the most important. Hmm. Lucy, I'm going to come to you next. So, you know, thinking about this retail model, do you think, you know, what do you see kind of sort of winning out? Where do you think sort of things are, are going to move to? 
Um, to be honest, in the future, I think when we finally emerge out of the COVID-19 uh, situation, I think lots of people will be seeking going back into stores and actually having a sense of normality in their lives. So although I agree with the showrooming piece, and I definitely think brands will be switching more to an experiential sort of uh, environment and experience for consumers. But at the same time, I think you'll simultaneously have a resurgence in people wanting to go to stores and have that face-to-face -face time contact with people. Um, and I think it will be really interesting as well to see the innovation that brands implement over the next you know, 18 months, two years, in terms of how they are being, you know, they're going to have to cut through all of the competition because more and more people will be looking for these experiences, this change in um, the dynamic of shopping. They'll want more and more. And as we've seen consumers be more um, demanding in terms of delivery times and things like that, I think we'll also see consumers wanting more and more exciting experiences in terms of these this showrooming piece but then also wanting the same thing online so you'll end up with lots of people who are shopping online but you'll also have people who want to go back into store to as part of the social aspect too mm, excellent um gavin i know we've covered sort of lots of different ideas here but do you have sort of like any different perspective on this or do you kind of concur that this is you know really how sort of retail will, 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 will be in the future yeah, like I suppose from, from my own personal perspective, like I don't have the, the, the retailing experience, I suppose, that the others might have. So as a layman, I look at my own high street and see, see how that changes. But I think, um, interestingly, um, the, the poll at the start uh, of people looking at the, the, the top figure in terms of what was e-commerce, when actually mm -hmm. in reality, it's the 28%. Like I think the, the, the reasons for that perhaps are because when we're looking at uh, online, people aren't you know, in a shop to bring their goods home with them. So therefore the, the e-tailer has to engage with other parties, i.e. warehousing, uh, 3PLs, distribution companies. And obviously those sorts of businesses don't have you know, spare capacity sitting in the background just on the off chance that something like, like COVID happens. Um, and, and obviously come in in um, February, there was a big, big choke point obviously because all of a sudden, it was a flick of a switch and uh, you know, stores closed and the only way to get something was to actually go online and purchase it. Um, so I think that that's, that's very interesting. Uh, I think it's been commented you know, that, that um, e-commerce has moved on five years in the space of five months. And certainly from, uh, I, I think, a volume perspective, that's probably true. Transactions have, have jumped up massively. Uh, I think it's put some considerable pressure on all the supporting industries. Um, and it's going to be very interesting how that plays out uh, over time. And certainly um, carriers, uh, warehousing have all made big investment in terms of people. Uh, you know, but people aren't necessarily going to be the long-term answer here. It's going to be system-driven. Um, and I think you know, both, both carriers and warehouse operations um, you know, were, were progressively becoming uh, smarter, uh, more robotic, um, and, and that's, that's going to accelerate if, if the current e-commerce uh, numbers you know, stick. It sounds like everyone thinks that bricks and mortar will continue to be part of the mix. I'm gonna, I'm gonna come back to you, Marcus, for two reasons. One, I wanna kind of sort of get your, your view as to 
how big a part of the mix it, it will be. Um, and, um, and also, um, I wonder whether you know where the source is for the 28% because um, Anthony was asking. <laughs> I've seen, I've seen the question. So it's the, it's the ONS, Office of National Statistics Sources. Uh, I'll send you the link if you don't believe me. <laughs> I feel like people don't believe it, so. We can send it around afterwards, perhaps, when we do a kind of thank you follow-up with the recording. <laughs> so do you think it's going to be like the kind of, in terms of the sort of omni-channel mix, you know, will it be that sort of e-commerce continues to grow and that um, and that sort of bricks and mortar becomes a slightly sort of smaller part of the pie or it sounds like I think, I think, um, I think there are probably two, two kind of connected answers to that question really. I think, um, I think to a certain extent it depends on what you call the pie and I think uh, in pure pounds, pounds and pence terms, yes, probably. The, 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 the chances are that yeah, e-commerce will continue to grow in that kind of share of wallet and, and physical stores will, will kind of decline. And as I think some of the guys said already, we've already sort of seen that manifest itself um, uh, over the last kind of year or so. Uh, I think the kind of other way of looking at physical retail stores though is kind of almost go back to that 28% to a certain extent. I think that there very clearly is an absolutely vital and massively important role for physical bricks and mortar stores within the omnichannel mix in the future and I still and I think that really is currently massively underappreciated if you put yourselves in the position of a you know if you are an online brand at the moment for example 70 almost 70 percent of the buying population out there you're not touching if you don't have a kind of physical presence of in some way shape or form you can't replicate that kind of experience and generate that brand affinity that we've all talked about without stores uh, to, to a certain extent so I, think, I kind of feel quite strongly that the future is really bright for physical retail but with a massive caveat that not with the model in the way that it currently is you know, i'd kind of argue that we're not seeing physical retailers failing at the moment because there's no space for physical retail within the future ecosystem that the model is really antiquated really expensive really complicated we don't make it easy certainly in the uk but also on the international stage to a certain extent to, to kind of run physical retail stores things like kind of kpmg stat out there that if you want to enter into the uk it generally costs you about a quarter of a million pounds to even think about it in terms of opening a physical store uh, and retail you know, businesses need to be able to be much more agile than that if we want to trade retail stores. The locations that are the right places to have stores are kind of all thrown up in the air and there needs to be a more test and approach to that. The kind of leasing structure around 15, 25 year commitments on spaces kind of needs to be ripped up and thrown out the window. I think to the point that Lucy was talking uh, about earlier on in terms of what that in-store experience looks like, the kind of talent you need working in stores, engaging with customers is probably completely different to what you might have wanted from a store associate a few years ago. So I think it's a real kind of big challenge out there for if you're currently a retailer that doesn't have a physical presence, you are missing something. <laughs> if you are a retailer with an incumbent physical presence, you need to be really brave and kind of shred the existing operating model and say, what's a different new agile way of, of running physical stores for that to, for that mm. success to really come through. Mm. Brad, I'm going to bring you in here, um, thinking about that omni-channel mix. Because yeah. thinking about your expertise, I'm, you know, have you seen sort of like much of a shift here, and do you think that will sort of continue? Again, you know, from a from a different perspective on this side of the pond, as we say, I mean, I think that we have way too many stores. I mean, I just think because we have physical space and sprawling retail footprints and malls and strip malls and everything else, you know, you do not need the number of stores that you that that we have today. A lot of the brands and and a lot of our customers, a lot of our clients are shuttering some of their brands. I mean, a lot of them haven't paid rent in 
know, six, seven, eight months, and they're looking to uh, continue to recoup some of these savings. Um, so, I mean, I think that, that again, I firmly believe that, that there is a future for, for, for bricks and mortar, you know, to really, really become part of that omni-channel clicks and bricks type of, type of movement. Again, it has to be fully reinvented as, as the caveats have been, have been pointed out. And, you know, even more so, you know, we deal a lot in Shopify plus, you know, to be very, to be very upfront. So we deal in a lot of D to C, which doesn't need a retail footprint. Now that's funny because there are some companies, you know, maybe the gym sharks of the world or others that are starting to open small little boutiques or smaller kind of shops. So you see a D to C movement into physical retail itself. And that's, you know, interesting. So it shows that the power of retail, the power of the store, the power of the connection, um, the power of the showroom, if you, if you will. So, I mean, there is, it's, it's needed. The greatest thing is, is that with the technology that's out there today and, you know, whether it be an e-commerce platform or whether it be your, even your shipping platform and your packaging, your, your shipment tracking, your chat, your whatever it, whatever it is, you can still weave all of it together. It's just a matter of finding, I think, the right partner, understanding the strategy, what's right for your business. And that just, you know, that takes a little bit more thinking. But, I mean, you have an opportunity to use technology to weave your e-commerce and your bricks and mortar seamlessly. Um, Lucy, I'm going to bring you in here because I wanted to get your view on sort of bricks and mortar. And I think you also mentioned to me a little bit about subscription model as well and how that maybe becomes more important in the omni-channel mix. And then I want to kind of lead into the next question as well, because I know this is your area of expertise, which is also looking at, you know, that sort of consumer sort of that customer journey and sort of like whether that will change um, or has changed. Um, and, um, and so I thought that kind of gives us a kind of nice lead into thinking about it from the sort of customer perspective, as well as the actual sort of mix of how things will sort of look um, in the future. Yeah, I mean, I was just listening to, to Marcus and Brad and it kind of, I, I completely agree with their points of view, but at the same time, you know, I'm speaking about this from a quite an Amazon perspective, I suppose, just from, from working there, they sort of uh, drum it into you. It's all about the consumer at the end of the day and what they want. And I think in order to be successful, whether that be in bricks and mortar retailers or omni-channel or pure e-commerce retailers, that we have to strip it back and look at, okay, how is the consumer shopping right now? How did they shop before? And how can we make sure that in the future um, we're doing the right thing for the consumer? So it's not just about, you know, stripping it out and thinking what, what would be the best opportunity for them. And that's where subscription models come into play as well, where over the last few months, lots of people have, um, you know, enrolled in subscriptions not necessarily in traditional sort of CPG items or subscribe and save opportunities on Amazon, but also flower subscriptions or, you know, restaurant delivery subscriptions as well. So I think, um, you know, there's lots of change and innovation coming in and will continue to come in over the next 12 months as people take this as an opportunity to basically take a back seat and look into their business and think, okay, how do we, use the current situation and what's happened to us to really understand the consumer dynamic a bit more. And if you look as well at Ocado, that's a good example where in the, in the face of the pandemic, they fell over in terms of their operation and, and went offline because they couldn't deal with the amount of demand online. And lots of people were forced to go into bricks and mortar 
you know, superstores to get their groceries. And from that perspective, you do need them there because they do fulfill a consumer need. Mm. Um, so I think the future is very bright for both bricks and mortar and omnichannel too. And how do you think this kind of leads into that sort of consumer sort of, you know, that customer journey? Do you think that, that you know, that's going to change sort of like, you know, significantly or, or what's your view on that? I think the, the concept of researching online and purchasing offline will remain the same, but it will take a while to get back to that because obviously people are reluctant to go in store at the moment. But then, you know, from the perspective of targeting consumers, people are going online and looking in the, they're in the evaluation and exploration phase, their purchasing journey. So I think that will continue where people are going online and they're using search. I mean, search is, is the future and that is how people are shopping right now. You know, there are these infinite aisles online, whereas in a supermarket, you just have one aisle, you go down, you get whichever item it is. Whereas now there's so much choice available to consumers and it's making sure again that you have that cut through. Um, and therefore, you know, looking at shoppable media and e-commerce media opportunities, Amazon obviously spearheaded that a few years ago with their AMS, um, you know, and AMG opportunities as it was, as it was called back then. But I think more and more um, e-retailers are beginning to see that they need to ramp up in terms of that side of their business. So the media side to really make sure that they're pulling in the consumers. And that's what consumers want as well. They want to understand more about the brand in what is a very cluttered and can be quite chaotic environment because there's so many products available now in the online space. It's not like in a supermarket where you have the sort of end of aisle um, media opportunities. There's lots going on online. And in order to cut through, you need search banners, sponsored search, um, and also brand stores online too. Excellent. And Marcus, I'm going to come over to you now because I think sort of your background plays into this. But, um, but also, um, Lex was also asking about um, the subscription model and whether it could potentially work in the fashion industry. I don't know if you've got a view on that. Um, and uh, Josie was asking um, back again to the sort of the, the stat um, the 28% as whether that included sort of food retail. So a, a couple of kind of things for you to sort of look after there. Sure. Um, I probably should have said at the beginning, my background before this actually was to run e-commerce food operations for Sainsbury's, which I did for kind of five years. So um, food and online is particularly interesting. I always, I should declare an interest here that whenever people talk about online fulfillment being quite tough, it's generally about product that doesn't go out of date within about 16 hours. So I always have a healthy skepticism about anyone's view that it's hard to shift products because 16 hours is, is hard to shift product. Um, so I guess an answer to that specific question around um, kind of online participation, no, it's pretty much neck and neck. I mean, uh, uh, kind of always has been that case. I think fashion is kind of 12% of that online makeup and food's another 12%. Um, I think the devil's in the detail though, because that does sort of ignore the, the kind of uh, the elephant in the room with fashion in particular around returns. Uh, and when you start putting that into the equation, it actually does become much more difficult in the fashion landscape from, a, from an online perspective than, than it does for physical retail. Um, I think it's a really interesting question about the subscription model in terms of in terms of fashion. I think there've been some really 
um, interesting early step moves from some some really good brands in that space. So things like Rent the Runway, for example, which I think was a, a kind of American began that kind of um, concept of having an almost subscription-based model. Thread to do something similar over in the UK, which is a kind of a, a, a tailored fashion mix and match kind of subscription model where you can then try on and send back what you don't want, or you can kind of share products and share clothing between people. I think it's got a really interesting future. Absolutely, um, it's interesting. I probably I think we probably see more more of our work in the physical retail space um, is the mirror image of what Lucy was just describing. Actually, we see much more value in the, in the kind of um, browsing offline, buying online space. And that I think could be really interesting and really powerful if fashion brands can land that correctly. If an offline experience can really get customers to understand, particularly in the fashion space, what sort of fit works for them, what sorts of colors work for them, what sort of textiles work for them. And as a result of that, that leads to a really sticky subscription model or an online purchase that kind of removes a lot of the returns burden. That for me is a kind of really specific example of where an omnichannel ecosystem could work really, really well. But the key behind it is you have to then appraise that. You have to understand the value of, of that subscription model to the process and that physical interaction of kind of cutting out returns and, and getting a, a stickier customer. So um, it's a really big, it's a really kind of complex challenge for fashion brands to get their head around, I think. There are so many opportunities to make a real success of that, of that mixed channel opportunity. Excellent. Um, Gavin, I'm going to bring you in. I know we've got sort of a whole section that's, that's your sort of expertise um, shortly, but I, I, I didn't know if you had anything to add in terms of, um, you know, the subscription model and returns and whether there's been any kind of sort of massive, I don't want to run down the returns rabbit hole, but has there been like a sort of massive sort of effect over recent months during the pandemic? Yeah, like I, two, two things have been touched on there, which I think um, are close to my heart. And one is actually food as well. I think there's a massive opportunity there coming up uh, and some real disruptive behavior um, on the horizon in that space. Returns, yeah, like fashion returns, like I think the figure quoted is sort of generally is 25, 30%. Maybe Marcus can nod or to, to that. Yeah, it's, it's of that order. I mean, that's, that's a staggering figure. Um, and I think that's, that has to be looked at. Um, how you actually go about it, you know, I, I don't know. It's all built into the, the, the purchasing model, I suppose, from the outset. But um, from a sustainability perspective, like it, it just doesn't add up. Um, there's lots of, lots of challenges as well in terms of bringing those returns back. It's not just a case of putting them back on the shelf because look, they have to be tested, have to be worn. You know, there's, there's lots of process to go through. So actually the, the costs associated with returns isn't just uh, the carriage of them back. It's also the, the additional costs in the warehouse of processing to determine are they fit to go back into stock? Are they disposal? Um, yeah, and look, the, the more, the more transactions, particularly in fashion, that go outbound, look, it's, the more, more comes back. Um, and I see it in my own house here. You know? um, people, buy, people buy things and, um, and a certain proportion tends to go back again. I thought, I thought you were sitting in the warehouse there. <laughs> uh, as I explained earlier, <laughs> that's why people can't see what's behind me. Exactly, exactly. So Lucy, I think you were mentioning a, a little bit there about sort of age groups and, and you know, and the sort of demographics of, um, of how people are behaving online. Um, it, again, sort of, you know, how do you think that will sort of develop in the future? Do you think that it's going to become the sort of like, you know, the prevail of a, a younger age group? Or do you think we'll actually educate my parents how to buy online too? 
I think it's a mix. I think it will continue to be generally that a younger generation use a more sort of comfortable using e-commerce and being online in general. But then at the same time, I think lots of, of older people have also um, really taken this as an opportunity to educate themselves in how to how to order things online. And using my grandma as an example, she didn't have a clue before before this all started. And now she's getting quite proficient in, you know, ordering things, using WhatsApp, doing lots of things she didn't do before, which um, which is fantastic. And I think we'll continue to see that over the next, you know, again, 12 to 18 months. And I think as well, retailers and brands will have to be cognizant of that and make sure that they're appealing to a wider consumer. They're not just targeting older people in stores and younger people online. They're actually creating harmony between their online and offline channels to make sure that they're um, targeting all consumers, especially in the case of brands which do have a wide demographic, um, that they're making it really relevant for them and not sort of being outdated in, the, in their approach. Mm. Brad, do you have a view on this at all about the, the, you know, the age group demographics? Uh, definitely. <laughs> because, <laughs> you always have an opinion. <laughs> in chat, uh, I mean, I, I think I think what Lucy's saying is 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 paramount. There's been you know there's these these new habits have been created. These these new experiment these new experiments have happened, and people have changed and will change, and they'll, they'll continue going forward with these new things that they found that make their lives more efficient. Uh, whether whether you be you know 80 or whether you be 18 uh, you know the, the biggest thing that, that we find is you know in a in a world of always on immediate gratification uh, depending on your client as you go after a certain demographic you know using using chat specifically to kind of you know connect with individuals on their time where they want on their channel you know being omni-channel is being everywhere and being able to kind of turn that on. I mean, it's definitely, you definitely see this type of, uh, you know, tendency to this technology with these different market, uh, target markets. And, you know, some are obviously much more uh, able and uh, interested in others. And I mean, you could even go so far as, you know, the, the, the you know, one client we have the 16 to 24 year old, uh, let's call it skate, uh, skateboard apparel manufacturer. They don't even use email. I mean, you can't you can't market to them via email. You can only market to them via WhatsApp and Facebook Messenger because they don't even have an email. So you know, it, again, it's just the way. I mean, that's leading edge case because of the because of the age group. But I mean, the, these are different different times. And again, mm -hmm. the experiments, the experiments, the experiments. Mm, absolutely. And thinking about sort of you know the, the particular theme at the moment um, is thinking about sustainable production. I know Lucy, I wanted to kind of come back to you on this one briefly. Um, is that um, you know do you think that that's going to become sort of like a big focus for people? The you know the sustainability angle. Yeah, definitely. I think 2019. You know, we really saw a, a shift in focus to sustainability, and you know, plastic and how it's destroying the world basically that was the message that was got across in uh, in media and i think lots of uh, brands have jumped on that and made changes to their packaging to their supply chains to really try and strip that out and that's not just applicable to the grocers there's also if we look at diageo for example they're introducing a new paper spirits bottle for johnny walker um, and then you've got loop as well who have recently entered that space and they're reinventing what 
how consumers think about packaging and how they think about the retail environment in general because their concept is to you know to rent the uh the packaging and refill it so you don't actually own your Heinz bottle of tomato ketchup you just rent it and then go and refill it and I think you know as well going back to the point about how will the future of retail look that's something as well to be aware of that big supermarkets may not necessarily be housing lots of plastic bottles and glass bottles on their shelves they'll be there as well for people to go and refill their um their vessels basically so i, th I can just imagine the mess in <laughs> my daughter trying to refill her heinz ketchup bottle <laughs> i do not recommend it <laughs> so um, gavin i'm going to come over to you now because we wanted to look at um harmonizing your sort of retail supply chain i know we have a poll here that we want to um, stick up. So I think, lovely Dale, you're in the background, sort of like in charge of our polls. So I'll give you a moment to kind of pop that up and, um, and perhaps Gavin, you can kind of think about, um, you know, your sort of answer to this question. Um, so we wanted to get an understanding is, you know, as a retailer, do you envisage needing to have multiple carriers in the future for your e-commerce business? Um, so most sort of people who are at the moment will tend to have a single carrier. Um, they might have sort of a different service for, for sort of next day delivery or sort of, you know, a quicker delivery. Um, but, um, but do you think actually sort of most retail businesses go down the route of need a multiple carrier um, or they're going to stick with one carrier um, or you're not too sure? So if you can sort of vote now, that would be great. And we should see those results come up on the screen. Um, and that should give you um, a little bit of fodder um, to, um, to chat about Gavin. Sure. So I'll hand over to you now, Gavin, anyway, and then we should see that sort of pop up as people sort of complete voting. Yeah, like I think, obviously, as I said earlier, there's, um, there's a huge challenge in, in the logistics sector in support of the move to online. Um, and I suppose we've got two things happening at the same time. We've got the COVID experience and also the elephant in the room, which still hasn't got a resolution, is, is Brexit. And both of those um, have put a lot of pressure on um, warehousing space, um, not just space, but space of the right type in the right location. And obviously then the surge in demand uh, in e-commerce has uh, put, put pressure on not just warehousing, but also the, the carriers um, as, as well. Um, uh, and I think looking back a number of years ago, we, we, we as a sector uh, in logistics got caught out. And I think it was caught, not, not just logistics uh, themselves were caught out, but also retailers and the communication between the two. In that uh, Black Friday was a growing event. And I think it must have been about seven years ago, it just mushroomed. And um, you know, retailers weren't able to cope with the orders. Their warehouses weren't able to fulfill them. Uh, carriers weren't able to deliver. And I think you know we've all learned a lot from that, um, that that experience, and that's seen, I suppose, those conversations uh, grow uh, and mature, and better plans put in place. Um, looking at the results here, um, carry. I, I would expect to see um, e-tailers um, look to increase the number of carriers that they would have on their books. Obviously, it depends upon the the. The type of business that you are, how many orders you send out, of course. I mean, do you want to water down your buying power with your carrier, for example? But certainly, in terms of the, the consumer, um, 
you know, consumers, I think it's been shown that consumers are more likely to purchase when they have better options available to them to receive delivery. And that will be things like you know, uh, partial shops, lockers, um, next day delivery, time definite deliveries increasing, same day delivery. Um, and I think, I would presume anyway, that a lot of retailers will have one eye on the current environment. They may have got uh, uh, some issues over the last few months with capacity in the carry that they're using possibly. I think this peak is going to be a, an unprecedented peak like no other. Uh, and certainly I, I'd be very surprised if, if a lot of retailers aren't building in as much resilience uh, to their supply chains as they can possibly do. Because, you know, not only will we have our normal peak, but we're likely to have the additional pressure of, of COVID as well. It was quite high though, 63% of people sort of thinking that, you know, they'd need more than one carrier. Yes, but I mean, some, some carrier, I mean, if you're a business in the UK, you might have both a domestic audience and an international audience. So it may be almost um, from the get-go, you've got two carriers on your books, or you might be shipping out both parcels and pallets. So again, automatically you will have a number of carriers on your books. And if you're using a carrier that is experiencing some capacity issues, you know, you may, want, may, well, may well want to supplement that with another carrier of a similar sort. So look, you all of a sudden are, are juggling all these balls with different carriers uh, and trying to manage your decision making as to why do I use carrier A as opposed to carrier B. And like, so people, retailers, you know, they're, they're looking at their different options and they're trying to manage those options. And to do that, you know, I think one of the big things is how you manage your, your systems and integrate your systems as part of that overall process of to deliver. And that's from your uh, ERP, your e-commerce platform through your warehouse management system um, to the likes of the system that, that we provide, you know, transport management system, is to help that decision making, is to make it slick, take out the human intervention. I mean, the last thing you want to be doing as, as a business is, is re-keying in data from one system to another. And, and you'd still be surprised at the number of businesses and, and the size of those businesses as well with the number of transactions that they're actually, they're, they're keying information from one platform to another. And that's just creating a choke point uh, mm. as, as well as building an error to, to your yeah. systems. Massive bottleneck. So just quickly on this, because I know this is going to be a kind of bit of a guess, but when do you think the last order date will be for the <laughs> Christmas? Um, how long does this string? I think it will depend <laughs> by carrier. Um, and, and obviously where you're delivering to. Obviously the carriers will be under pressure. I'm sure that debt will be pulled back. I, like, I, mean, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't I don't have a feel for it. For a delivery in London, when's the last date I'll be able to order presents for my kids? <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I would play it safe and uh, go and check it from a retail store yourself. I wouldn't leave it to the last minute. <laughs> So, so none of that I'll order on sort of like Christmas Eve. <laughs> I, I think you may forget about that this year. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, there could be some very disappointed children. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So we've actually got a question. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw this out to sort of like, you know, whoever wants to kind of sort of pick this one up. But we've had a, a, a question from Olivia. Um, and, um, and she was asking um, the best way to start a retail business in 2020, um, which I thought was actually, you know, a really good question if you're about to sort of launch now. Um, you know, what should you be doing and what should your model look like? Who wants to take this? A bit of a, a bit of a big lob ball. It's a big, it's a, a meatball as we say, in terms of trying to answer. I think yeah. that first of all, you have, you have to look at a number of things. Again, 
we work with very small solo entrepreneurs. So solopreneurs, you know, that one person, you know, running, a, running an e-commerce shop to, you know, very large multinationals, you know, on the smaller side, if you're starting something out, I think it really depends on, you know, what you're selling. Does someone need to feel, does someone need to touch? Do you really want to take on a lease right now? Is that something, you know, you can do a pop-up, that's fine. You know, so that's something that that's an alternative. And I think it's really more about choosing an e-commerce platform and just going all in online for at least the beginning that is going to be able to grow with you and is going to be able to help you. If you're technical, then great. You can do something a little bit more funky. If you're not, then you maybe you need the Wix or you need the, you need the Shopify or you need the something to start, you know, before you can get to, you know, and, and, and get the train, take the training wheels off. You know, do you have monies to, you know, pay, developers and 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 to, to help support you as well so these things are, are are not what you always think about when you're starting a store when you think about selling something online and opening up a, a shop with a with an idea like the logistics the the technology in the back end they become they can they can really come up uh, really quickly so it's something to think about in terms of the capacity for resources mm. and um, i probably if i could if i could jump in really quickly on that one i think it might be useful to share a, a kind of practical example. So we did this with a, a kind of retail partner, Brand Advice, uh, about seven, eight months ago, um, and kind of went through everything Raj described to us as an extent, actually. Canadian, Canadian-owned business, opening in the UK for the first time. Uh, we led digitally and, and kind of went through everything you've just described, Brad. We've ended up in the COVID world in a very localized physical setting. Um, for about four months now, actually, we've traded physically. Um, in somewhere that would not be on anyone's destination map a few months ago, you know, in, in a little suburb area, a localized high street in West London, uh, not a kind of really big destination area. Uh, and we outperform physically at, at this precise moment in time to the tune of about eight, eight pounds to one. For every eight pound we do in store, we do a pound online. Uh, and it really is because of everything Brad's just described. I think the, the, the online piece is really difficult to break through into. I think Lucy kind of touched on that too, the kind of, you know, the level of competition out there is really, really tough. And there's a lot of complexity around it that people kind of misunderstand. Uh, and I think right now, if you're on someone's kind of residential high street in the kind of current COVID era, uh, that's not necessarily a, a bad place to be commercially. People aren't traveling as much as they wanted to. It's, because, it's a great marketing window for us to be in that space. We don't expect that to be the same in six months time. We expect to be much more kind of online led again, and we expect the kind of the cycle to kind of repeat itself a little bit. But if I was Olivier think, uh, thinking about what I needed to do now, um, I'd kind of question the, question the shift right at this precise moment in time and, and, and think about it differently. No worries. So I'm going to come to, to you now, Lucy, and I believe we, um, we also have a slide as well, um, which is that um, how do you think people should be sort of preparing for the future? Great. Thanks, Davina. Um, yes. Yeah, so basically, I mean, there is a the slide hasn't come up yet. Ah. <laughs> there you are. <laughs> oh. Thank you. That's great. Um, so this just helps me frame it basically. But how we see it is we need to look at the um, e-commerce through the lens of the shelf. So in terms of the future, looking at the shelf from behind the shelf, at the shelf, to the shelf and beyond the shelf to really break down the different areas where the consumer interacts with the product online. So if we look at behind the shelf, for example, this is where we'd um, audit things like retail health of the business, such as profitability and operations. And then if we look at, at the shelf, that would be how the uh, product is um, appearing to the consumer in terms of the digital 
um, appearance and availability. So is it tangible? Are the product title um, and descriptions and images all um, reflecting the product in the best possible way? And then you've got to the shelf, which focuses on the consumer journey within the e-retailer and unpicks how they are interacting with the products online. Um, and then we can use this to understand the consumer again and maximize the opportunities within the e-retail environment more generally. And then finally, if we look at beyond the shelf, this goes beyond the realms of the retailer and looks at programmatic media opportunities as well. So driving consumers in the online ecosystem, not necessarily within a retailer, but they might be, I don't know, reading the news or something like that, and they're driven into a retailer to purchase. So I think, you know, in the future, having a model like that and breaking it down um, to make to streamline it will make it much easier to future proof your business uh, because it can be quite overwhelming to think of all the different um, you know, facets that come with working in the online space. Excellent. Thank you, Lucy. Now I'm going to hop over to you quickly, Gavin, because I know that you've got to go in a couple of minutes. So I'm going to just get you to give us your view on this kind of sort of final closing question, um, which is, if we're gazing further into the future, what do you think it's going to look like in, in kind of 2030 or as we sort of get towards sort of 2030? Yeah, well, look, first off, you'd be pleased to hear that my, uh, my, I don't have the escape actually in a couple of minutes, so I'm actually I'm all right. <laughs> um, I, think, I think systems, and as I was alluding to earlier, and their connectivity is absolutely critical. I think there's some big sort of back office um, things happening in, in supply chain. I think automation, uh, robotics are going to play a big, big role. In, in warehouses and really uh, slicking things there. But the, the, I suppose the thing I was really looking at and was touched on earlier is, is food. And I did allude to it. And I think Marcus obviously has an interest in this space as well. Um, look, I think food, food retail for me is, is going to be potentially a game changer going forward. Um, you know, will, will the supermarket shop that we do every week, is, is it going to exist um, in the not too distant future? It might be a thing of the past. Um, and will we see things like the um, automated repurchase and delivery based upon consumption or, or buying patterns? Uh, I think that the potential prize to moving to this sort of purchasing in the e-commerce space is going to be massive. And I have a figure here, it's a couple of years old, and I hope I've got it right now. <laughs> but um, if every household in Europe was to place just one grocery order per week, it would actually double the size of the e-commerce market in Europe. So that's a staggering statistic um, and how you actually would go about fulfilling that is, is another question but when you see online orders being fulfilled um, on, on the floor of the supermarket uh, today you, look at, you just know that's inefficient so something has to change and we mentioned Arcado um, earlier and obviously like, they're, they're making some moves in this space but also Amazon I and mean, Amazon are obviously um, make, uh, putting themselves in, in place to provide some sort of disruption in the not too distant future as well. So I think, I think the, the grocery space is going to be a very interesting one for the, the next few years. Mm, I think it is, right. Uh, so Brad, I'm going to come over to you. You've got a, a, a kind of minute to give your answer. Oof. So <laughs> How do you condense it in? <laughs> just use up 30 seconds. Okay, uh, pass. No. Um, I just think, I mean, future five to 10 years, I mean, that's kind of, I think where we're kind of wrapping a little bit of this up. 
I think it's, I think again, it's all about, and kind of shameless plug empathy and, 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 you know, brand connection. So I think that you still need to, you know, find new ways to connect with the audience. We may be those distanced. Um, you may have the smaller retail footprint. You maybe not, maybe you reinvent yourself again. It's just still really being able to have a conversation to be able to connect and to engage, to be able to do all these sort of things that, that is going to give you, um, you know, the ability to, 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 to stay connected and stay relevant to your audience. So very empathetic in these times, especially the next 18 to 24 months, I think will be, will, will prove, um, you know, will, will, will prove to be a, a great investment for the brands of the future. I'll add to the sort of shameless plug there because we've got the next webinar that we're doing actually with you, Brad, um, is on November the 5th and that's on humanizing e-commerce where we're actually going to look at how do you sort of bring that kind of sort of more sort of uh, connection with the brand, that sort of human interaction into an e-commerce business um, where those touch points are going to be online rather than sort of physical. Um, so, um, so if anyone wants to sign up for that, um, then um, that's on November the 5th. Um, so I'm going to come over to um, to you next, Lucy. What do you think the landscape, the retail landscape, is going to look like in sort of you know ten years' time? I think it will be more shifted to online purchasing, obviously. Um, but I'd say as well, it's a, a key opportunity where, for brands over the next five to ten years to really think about um, targeting the audience in different phases of the purchasing funnel. So I would say driving awareness, um, driving consideration. So targeting those that are engaged, that are not engaged with the category, targeting those researching the category, and then driving through to purchase. So targeting those researching the brand and then targeting past purchases. And that is the way that pe people I think can be successful online. So making sure that you're engaging with the consumer as we move to this online centric space. Um, and making sure you have that dynamic and that relationship with the consumer that can be lost in some cases through the online medium. Excellent, excellent. And then last but not least, again, Marcus. <laughs> not least it? again. Yes. <laughs> um, I think I think we, people like us on panels like this, we very often get the debate wrong, I think. I think we, we still fall into the trap of talking about this sort of future omni-channel omni world as if it's not already here. I think we're kind of already in a post-digital world to, to a certain extent. We're, we're five years behind the debate actually quite a lot of the time when we talk about stuff like this. Um, I think if you kind of flash forward to a high street in five to ten years time, I think the future of retail looks like almost exclusively digital for transacting. Uh, I'd be as bold as to say that and much more of a societal activity to experience in the real world. And I think the very nature of retail and retail stores as we see it won't look anything like it does today. I think the operating model will be completely different, much more agile, much more outsourced, much more of an appraisal of retail as a service and retail stores as a marketing activity. And we'll have just automated the vast majority of our purchasing decisions that will be fulfilled predominantly online. And that's a really exciting space for both of those. But I think, I think brands that succeed will kind of really sort out the convenience element of their online offer with all the things that the kind of the rest of the guys on, on this webinar are really focused on and doing great stuff in. And also kind of recognize the, the kind of marketing and societal value of their physical estates and, and structure that in a much more commercially sensible way than we could probably have it today. Excellent. Thank you very much indeed. So I, I, 
that was very interesting discussion. I think you're right. I think sometimes we're kind of we're we're talking about sort of you know where we already are or where we all you know lots of people are already trying to sort of strive to be. Um, so I'd like to say thank you um, for all of you for taking part today. Um, we'll obviously do some follow up with the audience and so on. So if there's any content, um, some of the references and so on there, um, then um, then you know we can actually sort of share those. Um, but um, we'd also like to thank you and your. Um, your respective sort of businesses for supporting today's webinar. So Smart Freight, OMG Transact, um, Heyday, um, and the ID Agency. Um, and um, hopefully we will see you again at something soon. So thank you very much, everyone. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs>